0: Welcome to Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for Wired.
1: I'm Laura Hudson, a former Wired entertainment editor and the writer behind Wired's Game of Thrones recaps, which are on Wired.com.
0: I'm Spencer Ackerman, a senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast and formerly a senior writer for Wired.
1: Citadel Dropouts is a conversation between two friends and Game of Thrones fanatics about how the characters and stories in that world connect with this world, in terms of politics, the social order, diplomacy, feminism, and war.
0: We are not a recap podcast. As we move to the end of Game of Thrones, we're going to talk about the deeper themes of these final episodes instead. Our goal is not to spoil, our goal is to enrich, but if you haven't caught up with the show and you care about spoilers, you should do that first before listening. All right. So, yeah. Mm.
1: So, Spencer, do you want to talk about Dragon Madness? <laughs>
0: I mean, uh, so we started out uh this season of Citadel dropouts uh by by setting up kind of a marker for how we intended to view uh the march to the finale of Game of Thrones and roughly speaking, it was Asking how seriously the show uh, was going to take uh, any critique that it was making politically and socially, and really thread that through uh, to a conclusion, um, and particularly a conclusion about what it would say was a just social order, was 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 a sensible political order, was a way to uh, emerge from from the madness of all-consuming, mutating war. And I think at this point um, what we end up seeing is that it 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 won't the 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 sort of you know more I wanna you know tear it at the at the thematic threads here the the more i'm I'm just sort of finding you know the whole sweater unraveling what 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 do you think laura uh
1: I think it's interesting because no, I don't think it's going to have anything coherent to say. Something I was thinking about, and that that you had mentioned before, uh, was dealing with Game of Thrones in terms of how it resolves its own intentions. Not just its intentions to speak necessarily about a political system, because I think those were less explicit, but its intention as a series that always wanted to upend fantasy tropes, mm-hmm. and I guess this did that, right? If that's a metric of success, we thought a lot of things might happen, but. Danny arriving and you know virtually destroying the entire city and everyone losing. I don't think I saw that coming. That doesn't mean it's a great idea. Uh that doesn't mean it has anything to say mm-hmm. beyond that, but on purely on that one metric, yep, it kind of did that.
0: Yeah, so several things make me kind of wonder, you know, if if you know, we're going to assume that that there is a you know, a, a point that they want to make um, on this show about uh, the social order. If if we really are talking about something, you know, much more regressive uh, than, than Danny's whole, you know, break the wheel stuff would have indicated, though, in our last episode, you know, of this podcast, we talked about how, how that fell apart. So not really a whole lot there. But, you know, here we really see you know, several layers of, of, of reactionary politics um, in a way that I found distressing, though, though perhaps, you know, listeners on the right might disagree. But, you know, it, it, it comes down to that that line they have her deliver um, ahead of the, the sack of King's Landing, uh, where she says, you know, in colloquy with, with Tyrion, who's trying to get her to spare the city.
1: Mercy is our strength our mercy towards future generations he will never again be held hostage by a tyrant
0: you know there we 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 get you know danny saying that you know there really is no civilian here that there's no relevant distinction between a civilian and a combatant there is no you know relevant political distinction uh between you know someone who is trying to save his or her own life uh versus someone who actively, you know, cooperates with my enemies. Um, and you know, here we we really see, you know, the horrors of Manichaeanism. Um, and given that uh, you know, there's so much in the way of imagery that, you know, reads to Americans is as, as as owing to 9-11, whether it's, you know, the the dust that is gathered uh, after all of the the buildings have been destroyed, and especially all of the paper like ash that's floating around. That it seems like you know they're really giving her a kind of argument that you know you heard someone like Osama bin Laden make about how you know by by you know refusing to rebel against an unjust system and being you know passively participant in American uh, you know political existence. Uh, you can be targeted for death um, with something like 9-11.
1: Yeah, I also think it's interesting there uh, in terms of how we see Daenerys respond uh, when Tyrion suggests, for example, that the people hiding in King's Landing aren't so different from those that she rescued, say, in Essos. You know, I think she does make a distinction on some level that these people are more innocent than, for example, the soldiers coming to fight her, but it's not functionally meaningful. It isn't gonna change her behavior in any way. The other thing is that when she responds to Tyrion, she talks about how in Essos, they greeted her as
0: a victor, right? Well, they freed, them, they freed themselves is what she says. The people who live there, they're innocents like the ones you liberated in Marine. In Marine, the slaves turned on the masters and liberated the city themselves the moment I arrived. And I took that to mean that because the other cities actively welcomed her, that this, they understood this was a liberation. The very fact of King's Landing, or at that point the potential of King's Landing not doing the same thing, she reads as active hostility. And so anyone can be targeted. So she's negatively comparing you know King's Landing to her previous experiences, where she did act as a liberator. And seeing a liberator, you know, go this route, go seeing a seeing a self styled liberator, even though, notwithstanding what we talked about last week about, you know, the hollowness of of how they present her agenda, and and how it makes me think that the show just either doesn't get radical politics it means to, or is hostile to them, um, is that you know here you have this you know supposed liberation figure who in fact appears simply as an omnidirectional scourge, uh, which suggests that they think that anyone who comes uh, with a liberationist agenda is really a scourge in in, in disguise and a menace waiting to happen and not to be tolerated.
1: I'm also not really fond of the sort of uh, petty uh, tyrannical tendencies that we see coming out here where, you know, there's the, the scene with you know, where the, the dragon madness is starting to kick in, and I, I want to talk more about that, uh, where she gets really upset because more people love Jon and not enough people love her because she wants to be love, love, love. Far more people in Westeros love you than love me. I don't have love here. I only have fear. And this sense that in some sense she's angry yes. or at least not as sympathetic to the people of King's Landing because... They are not greeting their salvation with sufficient jubilance, you know, that 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 her coming to 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 take their city, they are not welcoming her enough. And there's there's something there's something a little petty and dangerous in that to me that feels reminiscent of other despots we've seen.
0: Speaking of, um, they preface that by a scene whose politics I'd really love to hear your thoughts on uh, in which. Uh, John spurns uh, Daenerys's romantic advance.
1: Is that all I am, to you? Your
0: queen. All right then.
1: I didn't be fair. Yeah, that was weird. Um, I feel like I got a couple texts from friends being like, "Is John mad now about banging his aunt?" No, I don't think he's mad now about banging his aunt. I don't even know that he's. I don't know that there's necessarily a reason there. I think what they they wanted to do narratively was they wanted to isolate Danny. They wanted, you know, for her descent into dragon madness, Mm -hmm. they needed her to feel like she was alone or abandoned. So, you know, so she could say, uh, you know, she wanted love, but she's like, you know, essentially if it's fear, then so be it. That this is somehow that last turn uh, into her villainy. There could be an argument that part of why John does it is because uh, you know he's just witnessed the execution of Varys. Although I think of all of the things that Danny did in the, this episode, I thought that that was one of the most reasonable and certainly within the realm of things we have seen. You know, not only that that John saw Ned Stark do growing up, but that John himself has done. Uh, as as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch in terms of executing your enemies, executing traitors. That in and of itself didn't seem to me that out of pocket, though it clearly disturbed everyone around her.
0: Did you think that it was a misogynistic thing for the show to do? Showing that it it, it comes, you know, as a woman scorned, that like that spurning, whether it's the love from the population of the city that she can't get, that drives her to violence, or you know, in microcosm, the love of Jon Snow that she can't get in that moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is definitely uh, framed sort of as a rejection. Uh, you know, I, I think part of why the whole thing doesn't come off very well or or could come off as, you know, sexist and misogynist, is that the turn itself doesn't make sense. You know, if if you know about the Targaryen madness, you know that her father, Arius II, was the mad king, and he was the sort of person that descended into this sort of pettiness and cruelty to the point where he was he, like Danny, clearly, was ready to blow up King's Landing. That happened over many, many, many years, if if not Decades. Uh, it happens for Danny in the course of about an episode and a half. Uh, and you know, even when she's making that comment, you know, I'm actually showing the mercy by killing them mercilessly. There's a logic to it. Mm. I can see. I, there's there are tactics involved. She wants to take the city. She still wants to win. If you look back at Harrenhal, the you know the Targaryens of the past melted it, but they had a tactical reason for doing so. They were trying to intimidate the rest of the Seven Kingdoms into surrendering, which they did. When she completely raises the city, when she has that moment where something turns in her eyes, uh, and she, you know, just completely obliterates everything in her path for absolutely no tactical reason, it feels like quote unquote, you know, female craziness. And the way yeah. that we typically think about it, it, has no point. It has no origin. It's like when people talk about, why are you being so crazy? As though there's no reason why you're doing that. The narrative version of that here is there is no reason that she's doing it. She's just crazy. I, I, don't, I don't know. I really struggled with it because, again, it made sense up until a certain point. And then it's almost like they just decided, you're mad. I almost feel like it <laughs> It doesn't work completely on a misogynist level just because it executes so badly. Like, Hmm. I almost wish... No, that's not true. I don't wish. But had the show executed better, where I had more fully understood her sense of loss, her desire to be loved, her feeling of being scorned, and that's why she's going to destroy it all, Mm -hmm. um, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's successfully misogynist. But I don't even think they got me there. I don't think they established that well enough. So it actually ended up seeming just like this destruction without origin. So... Almost misogynist. Could have been. Not quite. They whiffed the ball oh, on that one.
0: <laughs> Imagine if these people got to make Confederate as they planned.
1: I mean, what was your take on when that happened, Spencer? Like that moment when it turned. What did you think had happened? What did it mean?
0: You know, the moment where it turns, I, I understood it to be when the city actively surrenders. Uh, and it's a begrudging thing. It seemed like the fate of the city was decided. You know, the moment they have her give the the villain speech, it, it makes me think when she's talking about how like all she has left is fear and, you know, so be it. What a shame it was for the show not to take what it was having her say about, you know, a kind of, of liberation politics at all seriously, because then she would have presented an agenda to people and would have had something beyond fear, if the writers had, you know, devoted some time to it. it. It it really seems like a kind of at this point nesting doll of some, you know, either reactionary politics or or, you know, writing themselves into a corner. I don't really know if having Danny, you know, no longer be breaker of chains, whatever that would have meant in a Westerosi context that they never instantiate and like clearly never will what 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 that'll actually mean here? I really bought nothing about it,
1: so she's choosing she's choosing fear, but fear to what end? Like what is the point of ruling over a city that you've destroyed? What's the point of terrifying a populace?
0: You know, now you do your own thing, right? Like you're supposed to have now shown everyone else in in the world, you know, like what's a good example, you know, Hafiz al-Assad. At Hama, where he bulldozed the city that was rebelling against him, um, that you're not to be fucked with. And that the remainder of, you know, this rule is going to follow that really terrifying example until someone figures out, as a ton of, you know, people who survive this moment will want to, how to kill her. How to, how to overthrow her, how to kill the dragon. You know, she's Moammar Gaddafied herself. At this point, whatever it is that she rules over, you know, she'll be ruling over it extremely uneasily knowing that fundamentally it's a lie, that she has no basis really for her rule except that, you know, she demands it. And to kind of add to, you know, the the uncomfortable, you know, reactionary element to it, if Cersei's whole pitch, you know, in season seven is you know, a xenophobic one that that these are you know foreign conquests, uh, not your liberation, but ultimately your destruction at the hands of 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 foreigners preaching foreign cultures, threatening your way of life. Well, they've just vindicated that.
1: I mean, and Daenerys. Now that you say it that way, Daenerys definitely does destroy their way of life because if she wanted to, for example, commit to use violence to intimidate the populace into becoming hers. You know, like for some reason, the um, decimation just came through my mind, which is the mm-hmm. practice in the Roman military, which is where the word decimate actually comes from, where when they wanted to punish large groups of people, they do a lottery system and like, you know, punish or kill one in 10. I mean, if she wanted to truly be deliberate, to pick out as she did with the masters, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most egregious offenders, but this is completely indiscriminate. It makes it clear that she's in no way trying to preserve... Uh, the Westerosi way of life. She is trying to destroy it and, and build something new from the ashes. And that fundamentally to you, does that feel like a different thing than what she set out to do? Or is this the wheel that she was breaking?
0: No, it's fundamentally in contradiction to everything she has said she believed, because it's not just a matter of looking at the, the means with which she achieves her goals. It's a matter of looking at what those goals are in, from the perspective and in the context of answering your question, the point of her violence has been to liberate people and there has been tons of it. And the violence has been particularly when she intends uh, to wield it uh, toward those who are propping up an unjust social order. You mentioned crucifying the slave masters. Um, That's exactly, you know, what she, she had done in the past, you know, as a necessary tool for liberation here. Unless you're really going to go far tanky and say that what comes next really is going to be, you know, so much better for, you know, everyone who's not in King's Landing and King's Landing is just basically, you know, one really big Harrenhal, um from the perspective of history, then you would have to, again, look at what it is she offers. And we learned last week she's not offering any kind of liberation. She's putting loyalists and supporters into precisely the same uh, spokes on a wheel that she formally spoke about breaking. So this really seems to break the character for me.
1: Do you feel like maybe this is some sort of uh, warped misunderstanding of radicalism in the sense that it really is burning everything to the ground and potentially building a new system in its place?
0: I think so. I think that this is what happens when, you know, reactionaries freak out about guillotines or they freak out about Antifa where they see everywhere an argument for uh, a more egalitarian society, a more socially and economically just society as being fundamentally pretextual, as being a way of ultimately unleashing nihilistic violence or unleashing a kind of violence uh, that very thinly disguises uh, a sadism uh, and a comeuppance Against you know your your natural social betters, the people who 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 genuinely ought to be in charge the the technocrats, the good government people, basically the bourgeois. I think people who come sympathetic to those politics will have seen a whole lot to support their view of the world
1: yeah and 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 one of the recurring phrases that comes up when when Tyrion's talking to Danny more than once, I think, and also when Jamie's talking to Cersei, where they say, It doesn't matter.
0: But it doesn't matter now.
1: Doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Only us. It feels like there's this nihilism there at the end. It's interesting to think about that as sort of this disrepresentation of the culmination of the fears of what radical politics would be. You know, it's it's again that sort of raising of the earth, but it's interesting to also potentially see, uh, some of the reflections, uh, of the fears, you know, that I think we've heard sometimes quite literally about female leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, and what happens when we put them in power. I mean, this is a nightmare scenario that is basically, you know, the high fantasy version, uh, of every dude who said, but yeah, do we really want a woman on her period, you know, holding the nuclear codes?
0: Right. I mean, this is what made me think this is sort of like a you know, a nesting doll of reactionary politics if the show even takes the politics that it's it's kind of gesturing at seriously at all, and i'm 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 just not really sure um, that it would be doing more than than you know really deeply reading in to to think that there's a design here um, outside of as you had you know written very insightfully uh, for Wired. Set pieces, as opposed to narrative and as opposed to characterization.
1: And there are quite a few set pieces, some of which work better than others. uh, This episode, certainly one that comes to mind for me is uh, the horse.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. I got horses in the bag. Yeah, go on.
1: (laughs) A fantastic song. Uh, A country song also, by the way. I don't like what happens with Arya here for a couple of different reasons. Uh, So... Arya has spent her whole character arc, and I, I think it's important to start about where she begins, because mm-hmm. the last time she was in a crowd at King's Landing, she was this powerless little girl at the Sept of Baylor, watching her father get executed. And she's gone on this whole journey across, you know, oceans and continents, and she has become an assassin in the entire point of her being. You know, we hear her repeat this mantra, you know, year after year about she's going to kill Cersei, she's going to kill Cersei. She has the entire ride from Winterfell down to King's Landing, which is pretty long uh, to consider what she's about to do. But then it's not until they get... You know, right into the keep, uh, and again they had that entire ride. She spent so much time with the hound before. You think that she's never looked at him and his obsession with revenge and thought, "How do I feel about that?" But he gives her like I don't know, like half an after-school special speech about like how revenge isn't great, and she just turns around and walks out. Yeah. And that's the that's the end of the revenge arc. Not only that, but then they push her back into the streets of King's Landing. Because then the obvious question is, why is Arya there? There's no reason for her to be there. Because we just destroyed the reason that she was there. And also possibly the point of her character. So then we use her as a point of view character to show what it's like in the streets of King's Landing as all of this destruction is unfolding, which in and of itself isn't a bad idea, but I really hate it for Arya because her whole arc Mm -hmm. was about moving from weakness to strength, from moving from being out of control to being in control from, you know, all progressing, you know, towards this point um, where she was going to be able to, you know, reclaim something for her family to, to get that revenge. And I kind of hate that we, the, way, the place we end up with her is sort of the same place where she began, which is, you know, in this crush of people in King's Landing, you know, running away and feeling absolutely powerless. That sucks. What I think would have been a lot more interesting if they were going to explore that, and they do it a little bit, but I would have, I would have liked to see Jamie carry more of that burden because his whole character arc has been about going from arrogance and power to... Uh, to mm-hmm. humility yes. and vulnerability, and making him the person that's running through the streets of the city that he wants, you know, patrolled as you know the
0: captain of the Kingsguard or whatever that that he saved that made that he's the king's that he's the Kingslayer precisely for saving.
1: That would have been so much more interesting. Um, but again, I I think they didn't know what to do with Arya, so they made her do that, and then at the end. There's a horse that comes out of nowhere, this like white horse. And like I was like, are we are we watching the Sopranos now? Like, is she gonna talk with Dr. Melfi about this later? Like, and I also think the symbolism was confusing because, you know, this is this definitely comes up in the books and and in the show as well. In the books, there's a Daenerys has a silver horse, ended up being white in Game of Thrones because they couldn't find a silver horse, because that's Not a real thing in real life. Hard to do, I mean. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Outside of uh, Wizard of Oz, it's not really an easy thing to do but that made that symbolism confusing for me because i'm like okay there's a horse and it's a white horse and Daenerys had a white horse and now she's going to ride the horse and i'm like what does it mean she, but then i realized what does it that, mean <laughs> but, but then i realized that when she finds that charred body of the child holding the little yeah. horse toy which is very reminiscent of images from hiroshima of the you know the iconic image of the burned tricycle yes. so the but then I still wasn't sure if that made any more sense. So I'm like, she's riding out of the city on the power of the dead child. I don't know if that makes any more sense or less than riding on the back of Daenerys. I I was utterly lost. And I'm someone who likes to make up uh, intricate bullshit around random symbolism for fun. And I could not get there. How about you, Spencer?
0: Uh, you know, all I got is that, you know, we we had been doing... Uh, since season three, this you know Arya Hound. I don't watch a lot of westerns, but like it's clearly like a kind of western reference that they're that they're playing with on on this you know journey of revenge and uh, and and redemption and so forth. And like it's a white horse, so you know she's a good guy, and she's reached that that point of redemption, and she can go. I don't, you know, I. I I do I did like with Quaggin Bowl, aside from it looking ridiculous and and eventually celebrating that it did, in which Sander is, you know, fighting his brother who looks like Vader without the helmet, that like the message was, you know, revenge is corrosive, and you know, holding on to that hatred for so long, is like I don't know I like that message, um, you know, you had mentioned earlier if you're if you're gonna do something that. That really, you know, breaks the character and and breaks the character relationship so fundamentally. Like, eh, they could have chosen a worse message for that. You know, I'm 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 really digging through this, you know, this this trash pile for treasure, uh, but that's what I got for you.
1: <laughs> I I actually agree about Bowl and it's interesting you brought up Star Wars because I feel like we saw this, you know, from the whole, you know, last level of the video game, everything falling around you, and you're fighting on the steps, sort of thing. Like it it felt very cinematic, but cinematic in the way that Star Wars is where everything's happening on this sort of, like...
0: Wagnerian...
1: Yes, yes. Space opera, sort of...
0: Gotter Dammer. Yeah,
1: where it was... You know, and even the falling off, you know, it was like, you know, seeing one of the characters, you know, falling off the bridge into space. I I don't know. It worked for me. It was a a consistent end to his character arc. Everything he did made sense. Uh, It was tragic. Uh, And, again, it had a clear message, which was... Revenge is corrosive. Good job. Uh, I'm not sure that I necessarily felt the same way about what happened with, you know, Jamie and Cersei. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know what? You know what Spencer? I'm going to bring it back up again. Okay. Uh, because in light of what happened, I understand that Cersei's sad and so on and so forth, but this felt very much like a reification of the relationship between these two twins that I kind of feel like. You know, was was there all the was there all along. Did seeing this make you reconsider whether or not it actually made sense or was true to the character of Cersei for her to put a hit out on her brother?
0: No, and it just seems completely forgotten. Uh until until you bring it up. That like she's ready to kill this guy until like, you know, you're you're facing doom with your ex and like the father of all of your children. No, it just it, it, it's, you know, frankly, you know, it, it, not just lazy, but like, again, lazy in a kind of misogynistic way. Like this, like they're not, it seems like they're not trying to be consistent with the character um, until like ultimately showing her, you know, as, you know, delusional and weak. And like, you never think that about Cersei.
1: No, I, I didn't like the way the end was, where she was sort of like almost childishly repeating to herself, I'm in the Red Keep and I'm safe, and but what about this and what about that? Where, you know, we've seen Cersei in life or death situations before. We saw her hiding in the Red Keep during the Battle of Blackwater, where she was sitting there with her poison,
0: like ready to go. And had a had like a real plan.
1: And had a real plan and was, you know, kind of, you know, acerbic about it and, you know, very, again, nihilistic and that's life. Uh, and telling Sansa how it was, as opposed to this Cersei, who's you know almost fugue like repeating yeah. uh, platitudes to herself. I did not, and I did not like that or buy that. As, okay, and yes, I understand she has a baby, as Tyrion has said fifty billion times, uh, which leads me to my next point. Tyrion, what did we just say? I feel like, it's just like I'm like talking to a, like a, like a child where they keep making the same mistake. They keep making it. And you're like, well, no, we don't do that. That's, you know, that doesn't, that's, that's not what we do. And then they go right back and do it again. What did I just say? Uh, because the one thing that Tyrion keeps trying to say is that Cersei can be reasoned with, can be changed uh, because she's pregnant and because she's pregnant.
0: She has a reason now.
1: And no matter how many times other people say that doesn't make sense, Tyrion, even Jamie gets into it in another pointless Jamie scene where he gets caught and then saved and then released and then goes back to doing exactly what he was doing before, uh, where he says, hey, Tyrion, that doesn't make any sense. The child is the reason she'll never give an inch. All the worst things she's ever done, she's done for her children. I know Cersei pretty well. Also, it's my baby, and she's only going to be more ruthless. And he's like, yeah, but go talk to her. I think this can work. And it's like, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even know what to say about it anymore, Spencer. Like it's, it's even gone beyond the point where it's a reasonable mistake for a character to make. There's that point where Jamie's like, Cersei once called me the stupidest Lannister. And I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) Not anymore. You're
0: not. Really not. Oh God. You know, it, it strikes me as having a, Suspend the sort of disbelief that you have to suspend to make, you know, yourself buy that Varys thinks Jon Snow is like a credible choice for King here, as opposed to being a legalistic one. You know, the guy who keeps telling you, I'm not interested in doing this at all. At this point, they've had Tyrion be dumb for much, much, much longer than they've had him be smart. And by most narrative rules, that means you have a point to make by having him always make these kinds of idiotic mistakes, and there just isn't one here. I suppose they're trying to make some, I don't really know if I want to attribute this, you know, to intention really, but like if he keeps defaulting to something, he keeps defaulting on the prospect that really ingrained behavior can be suddenly changed, um, which is also a delusional thing for someone, you know, to be making politically instead of, you know, what a savvy person would say, which is it has to be channeled, it has to be directed, or it has to be challenged. It has to be brought, you know, into contradistinction um, or contravention of, like, competing values and virtues. And, like, he does none of this, ever. Um, He just, you know, now, after, like, sentencing his friend to die by snitching on him, then just betrays Danny worse. And, like, you don't really know if, if... ultimately he's deserting here or if there's some kind of point, you know, to him sticking around or what, but like, you know, again, nothing he's done for three, four seasons, um, has worked out in increasingly catastrophic ways and not in a way that gives me confidence that there is ultimately a point here, whether thematically or politically. So, it seems like we've broken now three characters here and three really substantial ones. You know, if not for Tyrion, all of this is on Tyrion. They could have had the destruction of vastly fewer people in the Red Keep and that be it. In season seven, before she deci- before Tyrion decides uh, that, you know, we got to go steal a zombie and we do zombie quest. They could have won this thing, if not for Tyrion, with so much less bloodshed and so much more of a prospect um, for the actual agenda that, while the show is now obviated it, she always had been trying to say that 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 she stood for. It just really seems to me ultimately like bad writing, and you know some of the worst.
1: I I, I want to stretch for it. I want to I want to I want I want to stretch it. my muscles and see if I can do it. Crack my neck and see if I can make sense of, of Tyrion.
0: Get that no prize.
1: Maybe what Tyrion represents is how. Privileged white dudes uh, get overhyped to a certain point where they're put into positions of power, where they are ill-equipped to do their job. Uh, and mm. despite the very best of intentions, they end up causing tremendous hardship, horror, and death.
0: Mm. All right. All right. All right. So we've, we've, got, our, we've got our Joe Biden here.
1: <laughs> he meant well and he's so amiable. Right. I mean, I'd have I'd have a cup of ale with with Tyrion. I I really would. And, and you know, we also have Varys when he approaches uh, John on the beach and is like, you know,
0: <laughs> the weird talk on the Pacific Coast you know, Highway. Where he's like, he's like, yeah, just
1: hanging out there while Tyrion stares down from above and nobody notices that uh, where he basically is like, you're, you know you're polling way, way better. You know, you might not have any policies, <laughs> right. You know, you might not want to participate at all, but you know, like the woman in this race is really unpopular, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you're the one to back, uh, which again, I still don't buy because if you remember the first season of the show, uh, Varys spent a lot of time, uh, talking about and trying to negotiate around the fact that Ned Stark was a terrible leader who couldn't get anything done and was a danger to everyone around him because he wouldn't play the political game. John is not meaningfully different. In fact, over and over again he he reifies, he reconfirms his Ned Starkness. So that's weird. That's weird.
0: Let's talk a whole lot about what the show I don't know if it's gonna do this in in, you know, our our remaining episode or not. But you know the non-viability of Jon Snow here. If there was ever a question, is really on display. I don't know if anyone, whether it's for you, you just can't really. I I can't take seriously that Ferris thinks this guy is really a credible alternative. It, it's all I see is 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 the writers here putting you know words into Conlith Hill's mouth. I can't really see that you know Sansa wouldn't have recognized. That like the moment the Northern Army under Jon Snow's command uh is involved in the destruction of King's Landing, that like any possibility of replacing Daenerys with John, even if John were you know a truly, you know, gifted politician um and and interested in being king, none of that is possible now. Anyone who would be upset with Daenerys for what she's just done, has seen her willing ally Jon Snow, you know her vassal Jon Snow, show up for it. So he he can't really be any kind of alternative here. Um, you know, I'm not gonna go on a rant about liberal complicity in the war on terrorism, uh, but uh, you know, there's 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 perhaps some some things to notice here. Then he runs away, <laughs> like after. After the moment of, like, supreme destruction of the city has already taken place, suddenly he's like, oh, we got to save ourselves, run away, fall back. And, like, you know, to quote Jim Mattis, you know, after the aborted first battle of Fallujah, you know, paraphrasing Napoleon, if you're going to take Vienna, fucking take Vienna. Like, that's an insane thing to do and, like, even further undermines his claim. Now that you've, you know, sacked the city, then you run away to save yourself and you're going to be the alternative Uh, to the Mad Queen Daenerys Targaryen. You know, massacres happen because of weak leadership. Massacres happen because people in positions of authority do not take their responsibilities seriously, do not instill the discipline necessary to conduct a professional military force, uh, and bear all of the responsibility uh, for what their soldiers do. Um, We even at one point Hear Tywin Lannister say this in season two: Grey Worm massacres a surrendered Lannister army, and then the North gets into it uh, because you know if you're a Northerner, all these years of horror you've experienced started in this city, so you can expect if you are the king in the North and the commander of this force that like you've really got to control your people, or or they're just gonna massacre everyone they see, which is exactly what happens. It's it's really astonishing that you know not only have we you know broken Tyrion in this episode, broken Arya, broken Daenerys, but now we break John too, and kind of collaterally Sansa. Um, and 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 again for what?
1: Well, I, and break in different ways though. I feel like Danny, Tyrion, uh, and and Arya get you know broken in the sense that. They no longer act they no longer behave like themselves in meaningful ways, like they've sort of become untethered from their characters and or their character arcs have just gone off on wild zigzags. Um, with John, I think John has actually acted pretty in character. You know, there was this moment at the beginning when Varys tries to sway him and he says, "No, I'm loyal.
0: You will rule wisely
1: and well while she she is my queen." Which is what a Stark would do, and he manages to avoid getting executed. And I thought in my mind, maybe this is the first time that you know a Stark being blindly, stupidly loyal, you know, might have actually been of some use. <laughs> Smash cut to like 30 minutes later, when the entirety of King's Landing is in flames. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's obviously complicit, um, but I see exactly how he got there. That's exactly the sort of person that he is, and his his blind devotion. Uh, to his queen, uh, his sense of duty and honor. I can 100% see how that got him there. Does that now functionally disqualify him as a leader? Has he ruined his own chances? 100%. Uh, I'm curious about whether that taints Sansa by uh, association. They could always fall back on the bastard thing. Although I do want to mention, can you imagine Sansa's face when she finds out about this? Like... So many I told you so's. So many I told you so's. She told you. All the clues were there, (laughs) Mr. Snow. Uh, And nobody listened to her.
0: I I wonder what what the culture is going to make of seeing John responsible uh, for a massacre. If that's even going to be, you know, the dominant interpretation of that scene. Or if, you know, now that we've, as a country lived through so many episodes like this, whether it's, whether it's Haditha, uh, whether it's the kill team, um, in the Argandab river Valley, whether it's, uh, it's, it's Robert Bales, um, with, with his, with his, with his right, with his service rifle, um, you know, going around, uh, killing your, you know, Afghan civilians, you know, and, and, and down the line as a country, we haven't really dealt with that. Um, we've, we've, isolated it, uh, we've, we've seen it as separate um, from this, this never-ending war that we're in against varying enemies um, and shifting over time. I wonder how, you know, in that context, we're, we're really going to process um, that, you know, Jon Snow and Grey Worm, heroes to us for so long, if, if we even recognize, you know, by and large, that they are responsible for this massacre and, and how we grapple with that. That's something that I, I'm going to be watching attentive, attentively attentively uh, to this, the series finale to see, or if they decide that like much like the broader culture uh, that we're a product of that, you know, shit happens in war uh, and, you know, the purpose of you know and take the cynical argument and 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 i think the lazy one that like you know what we're showing is is just the the evil realities of war and that's it um which i think is a calumny uh against every every soldier who holds on to uh their ethics and their humanity in the most fucked up of situations which is the vast majority as we've seen
1: I I think we are left in a situation now where, you know, heroes in the uh, the stereotypical fantasy sword-wielding knight sense um or or even in a broader sense, I are are there any heroes left?
0: Arya's on that horse. <laughs> even though she got a, a, you know a woman killed and and her daughter if not if not killed, orphaned.
1: She's more of an anti-hero. She's more of a Wolverine though. I don't think we have any okay. pure heroes left. And I mean, I, I guess what I'm interested in now is I mean, Daenerys has won. She is now, you know, Queen of the Ashes. What happens next? What happens to the conqueror when, you know, once they've conquered and over over a ruined place? Is she just gonna go back to Dragonstone and have people bring her tithes? Like I, I guess I, I just can't really wrap my mind around what comes next.
0: And that's the game of Thrones, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah, exactly like i I am very interested in the aftermath and 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 if they can somehow pull this out, but they seem to be you know finding corners to write themselves into, um and in a way that I am not really convinced has been you know true uh to to the themes of 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 this show in this and this series, um which have really seemed you know at this show's really incredible heights uh, to be, you know, rather profound and moving. And I haven't felt like that in a while.
1: Neither have I. Again, I think they're, they're delivering set pieces, and some of those set pieces uh, can be viscerally thrilling to watch um, or, or satisfying. And some of them, again, mm-hmm. maybe may, may satisfy certain thematic... Uh, urges or messages the Clegane Bowl and so on and so forth Uh, but I think that the problem that we're running into that we've been running into all season that the show's been running into since it basically ran out of George R.R. Martin is that so much of what it's saying kind of wants to evoke you know when you watch something and a chill goes down your spine you know like Daenerys says, Dracaris, you know and she lights up all the masters and you're like oh shit that was cool but that was cool for a lot of different reasons beyond it just looking cool on screen. I think there was, there was
0: always something deeper going on in Game of Thrones. Yes, it was cool because it was righteous. And, and, and it hasn't been that way in a long time.
1: I, I think that it's just trying to, to mimic those moments, those bon mots, those, those set pieces, uh, th- that sense of theater. Um, but they don't always, you know, in order to really make a narrative work to give it depth, there has to be connective tissue. Between those set pieces that make sense, there has to be an arc. There has it has to be happening for a reason, either in terms of that character or in terms of something larger. And I feel like it, it you know, it, it feels pretty haphazard, you know, because we're sitting here tea leaf reading uh, about what it's saying politically, about what it's saying uh, about these characters, in the same way that you know I, I think that the show has so often. Uh, misrepresented things like sexual assault and then they come back and be like no that wasn't that wasn't a rape scene and you're like well we have a real big disconnect here because you filmed a thing that said that i think that they could very possibly be filming things that you know to a lot of viewers uh, express certain things that evoke certain things from um pop culture or life or other things but that's meaning that i feel like we're cobbling together on the back end Uh, it, it, it's not coherently coming from the show outside of like sick death scenes. Oh, also on that note, on the note of cool shit, like shit that looks cool. Give me that. There was that explosion. I was waiting for this where she's lighting up the city and then the, um, the stashes of, uh, wildfire go off. Yeah. And because as we know, there's shit tons of wildfire under the city, but it's just this, like, it happens for like two seconds.
0: Yeah, it's just like poof. And everything we know about Wildfire that your show has established is that, like, this shit burns uncontrollably. Yeah, we're just was. Like, nah, I guess it's oh inert. God. Just Who felt knows?
1: like a missed opportunity. If your thing is just looking cool, there was a real yeah. big cool-looking opportunity that, that got missed there. So that's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, I don't know. How are you feeling about it, Spencer?
0: You know, I had said when we started this season uh, that, like, the final season of Game of Thrones feels like going to my ex's funeral uh that like the love is gone, but you know, we met something in one another, or at least so I'd I'd like to to remember. And, you know, I couldn't see myself missing it. But, you know, uh I really loved Battlestar Galactica. Thought that was a fantastic, fantastic show with a ton to say, particularly about uh the the national security and war and terrorism themes uh that I that I cover um and have for so long. And that ended pretty terribly. Um, that ended in such a way that made me, you know, think they, they didn't really have such a solid handle on, on what they wanted to say uh, and how they were going to escape that trap. And that's what I feel is happening and unfolding here. You know, some of the fanservice elements, you know, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy uh, like I would, you know, a popcorn movie. Uh, But, you know, that's not what that's not what our relationship was. And that's not how I I want to judge it. And I don't want to judge it on just the the superficial elements of it. I'm I'm longing for a feeling that is that is, is extinguished long ago.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Battlestar because boy, did I love me some Battlestar. I mean, just obsessed.
0: It was fantastic. There was a death squad on that show by our heroes.
1: Oh, that was, yeah. And ugh, I just thought back to the whole abortion plot line, which made it, you know, genuinely more complex. Anyway, we're not talking about Battlestar Galactica today, although I surely would.
0: It was in favor of the Iraqi insurgency. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. But- sorry okay
1: you know i i struggled with it so much because the de- the deterioration of the show similar feelings all i'm going to say is for those of you who watched it all along the watchtower was surely the moment we knew it was all over <laughs> and this deterioration the feeling that characters were being shoved into to certain places and certain roles to i don't know you know fulfill certain mythic elements but not ones that actually felt authentic or made sense for the people you know and i actually wrote uh i think a uh a primer for Wired at one point about Battlestar Galactica. And I, su- I rewatched it and I suggested several points where you could stop.
0: I think after the trial of Baltar, right? Like I just pretend the show ends there.
1: That's one of the potential places. Another one that I thought about was, uh, and this is relating to Game of Thrones in a second, I swear to God, is <laughs> when they when they finally arrive on the planet that they think is Earth and they've teamed up uh, together. Uh, and then they get there and it's this barren wasteland and they all just sit there and like stare around with like blank terrified looks on their faces. That's where I'd end it. And we're out. Uh, And I almost feel like a similar way about Game of Thrones where, again, you know, I think the first three books are the strongest. You know, the original arc that was mapped out was basically through the Red Wedding. I feel like I'd kind of stop right about after that. if, If we really want to talk about where it's strongest. Season three, I'd have to go back and check maybe season four. But that was really when it was cooking. And I don't think it needs to end on a happy note. I think that the problem that we're running into right now is just the weird, you know, backbends and contortions that were making the characters in the story do to bend around from places, you know, where people had painted themselves into corners and things were complex and, you know, they were off on their own adventures in ways that wouldn't necessarily bend back around towards exactly the sort of ending that we're seeing without some, I don't know, considerable narrative pressure. And I think that that narrative pressure has broken the story. Uh, I don't know. Maybe George R. 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 is a magician and he'll pull it out in the books. But part of me, you know, that's part of why, you know, the the last two books, the two books that are relatively concurrent, that go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, is because I, I don't think he could figure his way out of it. And I think that the only way you get out of it is by doing exactly what the show is. And that's why it doesn't work.
0: It seemed to me that it, you know, must have felt the burden of of bringing this conclusion into being. Oh, sure. I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, given that this was a show that had so much to say uh, about the social order, about politics, about where power lies, about power dynamics and so forth, that to see it as it reaches its conclusion, have nothing really to say about anything like that, um, To have to have so thoroughly lost the thing that made it valuable, that made it more than tits and dragons, uh, really does feel bereft. And in a way that makes me not really sure if if there's anything I could, I could really see in the final episode that could be redeeming. But I am, in fact, rooting for this thing. It seems to me that, like so much of our contemporary politics, Game of Thrones has exhausted its mandate. Uh, but... You know, continues uh, zombie-like, hurtling towards a conclusion that can perhaps be satisfying as spectacle, but you know, corrosive to the thing that it once was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think the one way in which Game of Thrones has been faithful to its uh, original intentions, even though I think again doing that has bro- broken almost every other aspect of it, is that it's. It has subverted fantasy. Uh, it has not given us a happy ending. Uh, if anyone is on the throne, it's gonna be a broken throne. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I don't think that there's there's any true triumph that can be pulled out of this. Maybe, you know, some you know, you can always rebuild from the ashes, you know, like maybe it'll you know, what did they used to say about Valyria? You know, it's it was this city that right. had been, you know, the the pride of civilization for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. Uh and it was ultimately ruined. And, you know, ultimately life moved on. People went elsewhere. Other things happened. Uh, so this isn't the end of the world, but it's definitely the end of a world.
0: I want to take on for one second the idea of the show's mandate as being uh, subversion of fantasy. Sure. After a certain point, you know, like like Stannis says, after Tyrion, you know, ignites Blackwater Bay, you know, He's played his little trick. He can only play it once. There's only so far I think you can take subversion for its own sake. Um, it is immediately shocking. Like The death of Ned Stark is, 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 a, is a shocking moment. It is important uh, as a matter of genre fiction. But to decide that that's really what is the central element of this story... The thing that binds it together, the things that makes it valuable, as opposed to an introspection of all of the things, many of which indeed match fantasy trope ideas of a hero, that lead to Ned Stark's downfall. All of the mistakes he makes politically, all of the mistakes he makes characterologically, all of the mistakes he makes in terms of his assumptions of how he knows people and how they operate. That's what's in fact interesting. It's not just the death. It's everything... That brought us to that point. And now you're right, on a certain narrow sense, you know, seeing our hero become the implement of pure destruction. And that if anyone has won the Game of Thrones, it's a Pyrrhic victory and may not, in fact, be a lasting one, you know, calls you to then think back across this entire story. So what it what what ultimately are we saying? you know, brought us here. Um, what are we saying is the valuable thing, um, the valuable lesson uh, to take away? And I don't think the show has one. I don't think it's, at this point, interested in offering one as much as interested in being able to say, like, you didn't see that one coming. Um, and that, I think, is is kind of what, you know, brings us into to Hackery. Um, I watched this episode uh, with my dear friend, Kristen Caps, and he mentioned that one thing he found you know, really suspicious is, you know, how much we still have to learn about the Night King and he put that in the context of how there are going to be all of these prequel shows and that, you know, there is a certain aesthetic element that now has to be factored in to, you know, the differences in how you present a story that's a story and how you present a story that's a franchise, that's an industry, that's an economy. Um, And I hadn't thought of it like that and it's, I think, a really salient point um, that, you know, this this will end, but uh, the Game of Thrones franchise is going to continue and I think really beyond its mandate after this.
1: I, I think that's so interesting bringing up the franchise thing, especially when we're dealing with something like Game of Thrones that's so lore heavy. And one of the cool things about lore, arguably, I'm someone who enjoys it, is you know when you get interested in a story, uh, when you find it really compelling, there's some part of you that's like, oh, I want more. I want to know more about it. I want to know more about these characters. I want to know more about this world. And lore is cool because it it gestures at something deeper uh, and and broader uh, and and partially unseen. You know, it makes it it gives us more of the pieces of this world in a way that makes it feel real. Because you know, you get yeah, you get hints of the legend of so and so that connects to, you know the tower that they found in the third episode and the prophecy from here and there. And even whether or not it connects, it creates this sense of fullness because, because of what it hints at, not because of what it shows you. And what I worry about is if you flesh out every piece of lore, you know where it's like let's have bram <laughs> go back in time and show us every single thing that happened let's answer all of your questions let's have a prequel that goes through you know let's that really squeezes you know the the blood out of every stone of every word that martin's ever written i think that's really going to suck uh because i think you know part of what made the lore fun that made his stories fun was that they felt so deep and so possible and Always like there was something behind them that was bigger than what you saw on the page. You know, that almost like at 360 degrees when you're in like VR, you're like, if I turn around, the room will be there, you know? And and what I don't like about the idea of all these prequels and to some degree, the way that the show has handled stuff is, I don't know, I feel like it's taken some of that some of that magic away. And that makes me sad because I really liked it.
0: And on that note, as we head to the conclusion of Game of Thrones and of this podcast next Monday, if you haven't already, subscribe to us online with the Citadel Dropouts on iTunes. Uh, And if you have a minute, leave us a review. Uh,
1: We've also put together a special offer for listeners of Citadel Dropouts. First-time subscribers can get one year of Wired for just $5, which is 50% off our standard price. You'll get unlimited access to Wired.com and the Get Wired app, plus a print magazine, if you'd like. Just go to Wired.com slash flash sale.
0: Citadel Dropouts was produced by Jeremy Dolmus. I'm Spencer Ackerman.
1: And I'm Laura Hudson.